This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Ndidi Okazi. She's a rising star in the charity world, the CEO of UK Youth and a board member on three boards, including Centrepoint. We talk in this episode about being thrown in at the deep end, having courageous conversations, the idea of audacious confidence, kindness, and much more. It's a really wide-ranging episode and the last one before our summer break. It's a really good one. This is Ndidi Okazi. I'm here with Ndidi Okazi. How are you doing? I'm really good, Graham. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with what you're doing right now. So you're Chief Executive of, of UK Youth. Yep. So I guess the first place to start with that is as you arrive to have this conversation right now, like what have you been doing today? How's how's your day been so far? Um, how's my day been? We are, pop- what, what are we in now? Two, two weeks into launching our new strategy. So um, we've got a few strategy events happening later on this week. So I've been debriefing on those. Um, and um, also we are heavily in the middle still of um, restructuring and hiring and um, whole kind of recruitment stuff. So I've been feeding into lots of recruitment work as well. And so in terms of your journey with UK Youth, so you've been in post as chief executive for, is it coming up two years? 16 months. 16 Not that months. I'm counting the actual down <laughs> to the day or anything, but yeah, 16 months. <laughs> 16 months. And it's been quite a journey that you've had in that time. Let's, before we dive into that, just for people who don't know what UK Youth is and what it does, do you want to start there? Just just paint a little picture of um, yeah. the organisation that you're leading. Absolutely. Um, so UK Youth is um, a, a leading charity um, with a vision that all young people are equipped to thrive and empowered to contribute to every stage of their lives. We are an open network organisation. We have about 7,000 youth organisations and nation partners um, in our network. Um, and based on our new strategy, we are very much focused on unlocking youth work as a catalyst of change um, mm. that we believe is needed now more than ever. Um, fundamentally, you know, we are a bit of a hybrid organisation. So we're an infrastructure body for the youth sector. We are direct um, programme delivery um, um, organisation as well. And we're a campaigner for social change. So collectively, our work is to kind of build a movement of like-minded people who are determined to create a society that understands, champions and delivers effective youth work for all. Mm. And I guess the last few years have been just quite a challenging time in the whole youth work space, right? So just just give us a, a flavour of that challenge over the last few years. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. I think um, the, the sector at large, I think, has seen, um, I think it's something like between 60, 65% of... Um, cuts over the last 10 years like across the sector just wow. in terms of the kind of the investment that's gone into youth work as a as a standalone thing that young people should have access to um, and that's going into the pandemic right and then you've got the pandemic which is just essentially exacerbated all the challenges all the issues at both a sector structural level but then more importantly at the level um, on which youth work addresses like so the, the kind of support provision experiences um pathways that youth work typically supports young people through the pandemic has just you know made that 10 times um more difficult and one of the ways that i try and bring it to life for people is that it, last year that if you think about every single sector that was making its case for support in terms of either government funding or you know whatever that might look like in terms of support to help the sector still be there on the other side one of the things that i noted was that whereas 
places like education, health, arts, um, all these sorts of other sectors were making their case based on the you know the merits really of the impact that um had that they had seen the youth sector was was having to do that but was also trying to essentially make its case for it itself <laughs> and there mm. were there were lots of conversations that really for me illuminated that oh wait people don't understand this sector like yeah. i'm talking like government all the way through that people we're having to explain who we are we're trying to we're having to explain why when you're talking about young people and you're talking about what you need to get ready in terms of being being there for young people on the other side of this we were having to make a case as to why we should be in the conversation and that just felt like such an eye-opening moment that that for me just really crystallised why our strategic focus is what it is as an organisation because yeah. that, that's just something we can never afford to be in a position of again. Yeah, and obviously the last year or so dealing with COVID, you know, we've had all these situations where it, you know, it's been a constantly changing thing. There's been times when schools were closed and... You know, I think one of the things that we're starting to see now is the, you know, the the kind of reports and data around homeschooling and how for, you know, for certain kids, they were diligently homeschooling for and for certain other kids, they were just not involved in homeschooling. And like, I guess, like traditionally, you know, people look at youth centres as the place where kids go if they're if they're sort of not at home and they're not at school. That's the place that kind of mops up that provision and and gives young people a, a sort of place to to throw their energies but i guess i guess there's like a, there's a big issue there generally isn't there around around how young people have been hit by the pandemic because obviously young people weren't necessarily the most vulnerable in terms of getting covid and getting sick but actually they've probably had the biggest impact in terms of having to put the rest of their lives on hold a hundred percent and it's interesting just you know even before that like i think your point about if it's not school and it's not home where do young people go um it's such an important one because the the sad reality is that for most young people there isn't a youth provision for them to yeah. go to yeah. and um you know that's the real and i think one of the questions i think is a, a bit of an entry point into why this conversation is so important why this issue is so important is to ask any and everybody where do young people go <laughs> where where do you think young people go if it when they're not going to school when they're not at home um because there's a question there about when home isn't a place you can go what happens there and um when there are there you know there are issues with home um you know you and i both have an experience of of center point when you think about how young people end up homeless there is there is so many different things that tend to happen for young people before that can mm -hmm. happen and and yeah. having that safe place to go is is such an obvious thing but i think the sad reality is as a society we can't answer they can go to a youth club, they can go to a youth provision because we know that the majority of young people don't have access to that. So I think yeah. that's that's just an interesting way for, into this topic for people, I think, in terms of trying to understand why, why we're advocating for youth work the way that we do. Um, I think, yeah, to your broader point, it's... It, the it took a while for for the, for the for this to kind of reach the kind of mainstream news media but i think now most people can understand and accept that young people are one of the if not the hardest hit demographic coming out of um covid whether it's from the economic perspective in terms of job prospects whether it's from academic um learning whether it's from issues around um online safety um you know now there's all of this conversation around mental health challenges and the the kind of steep rises we've seen in self-harming um and you know sadly um you know suicide rates as well all of these things i think uh, you know digital divide the issue around access to the mm, things that we all just yeah. assumed would just kind of carry on um i think the sad reality is that covid has really exacerbated existing things if you work with young people none of these things i've mentioned are a surprise but for so many people it's put it on a under a spotlight in a way that um, i think is is helpful in terms of understanding but clearly it has really exacerbated the issues as well so on every single one of those 
metrics we have stats that would just really chill you just yeah. in terms of what young people are having to to deal with at this point so what's interesting i suppose is that you've got this exacerbation this this exaggeration of of the the space that you're advocating for and and sort of working within you know in terms of the work that you do and then i guess also just covid itself has exaggerated just the challenges of being a chief exec right mm. as well so <laughs> i read a thing um so so uk youth has got this uh, place called avon tyrrell which is like an outdoor learning center and of course you had to close that through the pandemic so that's a huge loss of funds for the organization and then you're six weeks into the job and having to furlough people and make people redundant so i'd just love to hear about how you've managed to just personally deal with just such a huge such a huge to-do list over the last you know year or 18 months and just what's what's been your personal experience of that yeah and I think it's, it's a great question but I think the reality is I've got nothing to compare it to right like I, <laughs> right. The, the most the the, the 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 most ironic or saddest part of all of this is that um this is my first CEO role yeah. so I've kind of came in with such naivety about what the job entails anyway. And I think even without a pandemic, it would have been a really interesting learning curve. Mm. But yes, the pandemic um, almost um, accelerated things that, you know, maybe it would take five years for you to experience as a chief executive. So, you know, the idea of um, having to lead virtually, having to lead where you you haven't established relationships and dynamics, having to... um, shut down parts of your organization, you know, restructure the organization. We we furloughed 65% of the organization at one point um, wow. and then had to make redundancies when, when we realized and accepted that there, you know, there was real no, there was no coming back, you know, based on how we were going in. So we had to kind of, you know, recut our cloth as it were. And you doing all of that on a premise of, you know, asking people to trust you that don't know you. And I think that there was a lot there that I went through a lot of self-analysis, um, you know, self-doubt. Um, and a lot of it was this idea that an experienced CEO would just have made different decisions or would have made choices in a different way. And, you know, I don't think any of that really bore out, but the reality is that you think that's the case, right? And um, yeah. it's well, there's yeah. one reflection I shared on LinkedIn, I think, last year, which was it reminded me so much of my initial years teaching um, where I was, you know, I was training, I was developing as a teacher, but I was, I had year 11s, I had year 13s. I had people for whom the fact that this is my like training ground is all mm. well and good, but it's their one shot at this year. Yes, right. It's there. And there was such a, a load and a weight of responsibility that was, are people paying for your learning curve? Um, and and mm-hmm. what does that, what do you do with that at night, right? Like there was just something that I couldn't, it took me a really long time to reconcile the the idea that oh man like you know if if there was a different if some you know if somebody had been a ceo longer maybe maybe that person's experience would have just been different at this time when you really really deserve to have as a smooth an experience as possible so there was a lot that was i think the the biggest pressure for me um yeah. and then on top of that yeah just the reality of all the um, you know, the juggling plates, all the spinning plates, all the different things that you had to do that, yeah, I really quite quickly dropped all the commitments I'd made to myself going in about prioritising your own development and prioritising your own well-being and like, you know, being the role model about how you balance things. All of that just completely disappeared. And it was um, working non-stop. It was, wow. it was, for me, the pandemic was, was, good but not good in the sense that it took away those moments in the day that forced me to stop working whether it's travel talking to people just you know casual chat this one I could literally wake up at five o'clock in the morning and work all the way through to nine o'clock at night and no one would stop me Um, and I did that for for far too long I think wow yeah because it's just that it's like the the all those travel times and and you know walking around and all that like that's the that's the mental space right yeah, where you start 100%. to 
join the dots between what you're doing and start to think strategically and all that. And if you're just heads down with it the whole time, I mean, that's just, that's relentless, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'd love to just come back to something you said a minute ago about your, like, regardless of COVID, you were saying that you would have certain naiveties going into the chief exec role. And I kind of had, I definitely feel like I had a lot of naivety when I did my first charity CEO role as well. I'd love to know um, what you particularly, looking back on it, what do you think was particularly naive or different? And just how has it surprised you, regardless of COVID, just the role being different to what you expected? Yeah, and it's, it's, it was a great question. And for so long, last year especially, I, every time I was asked that question, I kept on thinking, I haven't even been able to process it. Like, I haven't mm. had the... The, the the space and the time to just step back and say actually what has that been like and I, yeah. I think I feel you know a bit clearer now but I still feel like there's probably a lot to unpick for me personally the top the top two things I would say were I um I, I you know I always talk about the preparation that I did beforehand because it was really important to me to get this right um it was an organization I um or a, a area of work I cared a lot about it was you know, it was it was the ideal um, kickoff point for me in terms of um, this journey. So I really wanted to honour it, and it was a really big deal to be a CEO for me. So it was it was also something that I just wanted to honour. I was very very conscious of the eyes that were on me, um, more so than I even realised. But with the, the 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 reaction once I was announced, just completely overwhelmed me. But it it just increased and intensified the pressure to not fail. So I oh, think wow. I, I came into it really wanting to honour all the people that were just celebrating my appointment and um, that, that for whom I, I was a, a kind of a, a single a symbol, symbol that, um, oh, OK, yes, it's possible, it's done. You know, I, I, remember, I always say I remember the recruiter that um, placed me Told, I think they invited me on a podcast actually pretty soon as, after I'd been appointed. And one of the stats was something like, I always forget it, but it was something like only 6% of the charity, not-for-profit sector, are um, black um, or, and or women, something like that. So there's a there's a 6% stat and there's a 2% stat. I can't remember which now. What, in terms but of C- CEOs, CEOs of charities? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And it was just chilling. Like, yeah. I just, I don't know what, it just, it, it just like petrified me. Um, and so I think I, you know, I'd, I'd already kind of honoured it in terms of preparation, but let's just say I turned up the dial. So I did all the prep work coming into it. And I've obviously been a, a leader and a senior leader for a really long time. So I kind of felt like I'm yeah. pretty comfortable with this space. But the one of the biggest re- reflections for me is when they say the, the CEO role is a lonely role, Um, yeah that's not just words like that is something that I really thought I was ready for um but it's so real Mm. and it's the it's something that I think I realize in a sense that one of the ways I understand it now that I try and communicate is that up until that point regardless of who you are where you what work what level all of those things you have two things. You have a peer group and you have someone that you can, that is above you, that is, that supports you, right? Like that, mm, that there is just yeah. those two dynamics. Whoever you are, you have that. And as a CEO, you don't have that. And I really thought that my senior leadership team were still that. Like that's my team. That's my but they are, but they're not, right? Like there's a, there's a slight, there is a difference. And that became really crystal clear to me in a way that I, I think I was quite ignorant of. Um, yeah. And then the above you, the chair and the board are a different dynamic to the above you that you've been used to. Because yes. it's, it's just a different relationship. It's a different level of accountability. So you are really on your own. Um, and no one sees the organisation, experiences the organisation, thinks about the organisation in the way that you do. And so that's a very isolating experience. Um, and again, I think I think I thought I knew what that was going to be like, but it, it's very, very um, palpable 
how how um how much that impacts you as an as an individual i think yeah i i kind of have similar reflections on that I, like i just think it's similar for me being the founder of a business yeah um as it was when i was in that ceo role and actually i'd never really thought about becoming an entrepreneur before and i think definitely you know just the experience of how it is all on you and everything is your fault and mm-hmm. everything is your job <laughs> right um just experiencing that as as the ceo of a charity definitely made me think oh maybe i could run my own business and right, i okay. i've not really thought about it like that that wasn't really part of my career plan before i don't think but I, but i suppose yeah the the what i certainly observed in my time in the charity world as well is that where you've got a really good partnership between the CEO and the chair mm. that gets you so far. But mm. like you say, the, the chair is still at that point saying, all right, so, you know, we're, we're in partnership about what we need to do, but then you go and do it. And, and, and then it's still lonely, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so he, just a huge, just bundle of challenges to, to sort of get your teeth into over the last year. And I suppose the other thing just to pick up on from what you were talking about before was that sense of responsibility as a black female CEO. So like what's, I mean, because obviously your job is not to be a black female CEO. Your job is to be the CEO. So so it's almost like having two jobs that you're carrying this sort of sense of responsibility. So I'd just love to just dive into that a little bit more and 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 just... I suppose the, the 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 question is, what do you like? What were you seeing as the things that you had to do differently, or to dial up, or exaggerate to to really kind of carry that responsibility well? Yeah, I, the the thing is, I I don't think I get to distinguish it in the way that you did, and I think I would love to. I would love to think about it. Well, you're hired to be a CEO, and that that's mm. what you are. But the reality is that I I am a black woman CEO. And actually each of those things comes with its own thing. And then you compound them together. And again, I've experienced (laughs) the, even the, the, the gender dynamic, I've experienced that through my own leadership journey where you know, you are invited to speak on things because you're a woman. You're invited Mm. to feed into issues and topics because you're a woman. I've been invited to speak into issues on race for many, many years, right? So it's not, it's never really been something I've been able to decouple. As a teacher, students would come to you because they could identify with you in certain things. You've got to, you've got to speak on issues from a place of connection, whether that's a, a locality, you know, based on like, you know, London, what it is to work, you know, grow up in particular environments all the way through to, you know, being African, being black, being female. So I think we all draw on all all, all aspects of who we are. We can't, we, you know, there is no, I don't know. I've never experienced a way where I just get to be the thing I am as opposed to all of those things together. But yeah, I think again, the CEO level, I, I wasn't expecting it. I, I again, feel very naive walking into it, but when when my appointment was announced, I, I just cannot explain to you the reaction and the responses that I got, the messages, the people kind of reaching out like, oh my God, celebrating the appointment more than celebrating me, if that makes sense. Mm. So it was like, oh my God, you know, a, a, a black woman is leading, um, you know, a, a leading youth charity, you know, an organisation in the, the third sector. And this was all before everything that's happened. So well, I didn't even know all the issues the charity sector had when right. it came to yeah. this. So, I, so yeah. you know, you can almost understand that now. But at the time, I was really taken aback. Um and and so yeah, I do think that there there've been moments where I I felt like um I tell you give you a great example. So UK Youth is a hundred and eleven years old, right? Mm. This is an organization that has weathered <laughs> so many transitions, you know, wars for goodness sake, like all sorts of things. They've and survived a few government yeah, funding cuts few, before, right? Just a few <laughs> things. Um and pandemic aside, if I can if you can imagine I say those words. One of my biggest fears last year was that the organisation would close under my watch. Mm. And all I could think was, history is going to say 
a black woman w- made UK youth fold. Gosh, like that yeah. that was all I could think was, and I just didn't think that history would remember there was a pandemic. All I remembered was you were given the baton, you dropped it. And mm. it's going to be more than Indidi Okazi dropped it. It's going to be all these other things. So I've never been able to decouple the 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 my race or my gender from my role. It's all mm. felt very intertwined. That's fascinating. And just such a, that's a real weight. It's such a weight of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely feels that way. The other, I suppose the other thing around race that I wanted to talk to you about, maybe this leads on quite nicely, is um, so in the aftermath of George Floyd, you you asked a lot of questions of your team and you ended up coming up with this hashtag Young and Black uh, campaign around it. And it just sounded like, and yeah, and I suppose the other thing to throw in there is, like you say, what's also been uncovered over the last year is just a lot of structural racism in the charity sector and and of course you know far beyond that but we're talking about the charity sector right now so what was what was that what was that process what did you what did you do how did you approach it like how how did you get the organization into a place to because you're still quite new and everything else is going on what what was the process around around asking questions about race and and really understanding those issues I mean, I think if I'm honest, where it came from was my my own complete surrender to the fact that I didn't know what the hell to do. <laughs> so, like, for, for me, I, I was, I think at that point, um, what would be March, April, May, like, maybe three, I was, I, I had just been on go, 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 right? Yeah. Like, this was me yeah. just, like, go, 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 every trouble, everything, furlough stuff, all of that, go, 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 go. And, um the murder of George Floyd brought me to my knees. Mm. And I think I was just emotionally spent, physically spent. I had absolutely no idea what to do, but I I knew I was meant to be doing something. And I, um, I always say this and I think some people may think it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting story, but I really was, um, bowled over into like a like a fetal position on the ground I was emotionally so traumatized by by what I'd seen I you know I've got family in the states I I I just I just can't I can't I could get emotional now thinking about it like it was Mm. an incredibly traumatic experience and it just felt exhausting it just felt so it was one of those moments where I really did think oh yeah there's nothing we can do like this is just never going to stop it's relentless and um I think there was just a moment there for me where I really I um and I did do it on my own you know I I had somebody kind of speak into my life as it were kind of like shake me up a bit but very much realizing that wait hold on I do have agency like if 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 this isn't the moment to lean into your agency as a CEO then what is Right. Um, but yeah. I didn't want to approach it as if I had answers because I really didn't. But what I was feeling was this, like my phone was buzzing, my emails were on fire, like everyone around, everyone was like, I don't know what to do. I just, I feel like all of these emotions were coming out and my staff were saying the same thing, just all this emotion, just this mm. pain. And literally all I could think to do was, I just, we just need the space to talk like yeah. that's all we need and that's all I did so I literally emailed all my staff a whole staff email it wasn't mandatory it was look I'm gonna put this time in the diary it's just literally I called it a space to talk that's it no agenda nothing else we're gonna we're gonna come together we're gonna share we're gonna listen and we're gonna just talk and mm. um the majority of staff came and we heard from um you know I shared what was going on for me we heard from other um, black colleagues then we heard from like you know non-black colleagues just talking about what was going on for them and it was such a powerful like real raw emotional um challenging candid conversation that we ended it by saying 
what can we do with what we've just experienced here? And we made yeah. two commitments. One, we would carry on internally with it. And we, we up to today, we still have the space to talk session. But we said, why don't we, why don't we simply offer that out? So let's have, let's, let's create a space, let's create a call to action to have a space to talk. And that's mm. where the Young and Black campaign was born. You know, we did it in partnership with others that shared this, this need to convene a safe space for young Black voices to be platformed, to be listened to, and for people to reflect on what they were sharing. Yeah. And, and that's all that happened. And we, I could not have predicted what it would end up being and you know the 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 resources and the people signing up and the corporate partnerships that have kind of come from it but there was no kind of massive plan at the end beginning it was literally what do we do with this pain mm. and 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 it was like right that i really believe i am such a believer in the humanity of people what yeah. you know it's it's probably my most naive trait but it's the thing that has fueled me to where I am today. That I, at the core, I believe that if if we can see the humane in others, I think that's the that's the foundation on which real social problems can be solved. So it was a very easy thing for me to do and to champion why it was important to do and to accept the backlash and the you know what happens when you lift your head up above the parapet especially on a topic of race and all of the backlash that kind of came for me personally um was was worth it because we saw all the benefit that was also coming from that that's super inspiring i really hope you're not naive because i feel like i share that naivety and um god if that's what naivety is then uh, sign me right. up you know i totally with you there and just believing in humanity and I think having I, I suppose having the confidence to say as a leader I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you all the answers I'm gonna create the space mm. like that is for me that's just like fundamental leadership right is that leadership's about listening too and what you did is said let's all create the space to listen here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah just hugely powerful what was the the bit you said just at the end there about the backlash that you had? So, mm. like, like what was that? This is such an interesting. I remember telling my um, some of my senior team about this and my staff that like there probably has not been one single time mm. I have posted about race, talked about the Young and Black campaign, talked about the issues around this online on an event where I've not been trolled. Like oh, I've not God, had, really? oh, 100%. Like it's so, there was one event that we did where um, we hadn't turned off, I don't know, something. They hadn't turned something off. So the, the team got to see it and were like so like upset at like, you know, yeah. what they, and I, I was, it really took me aback because I was like, oh God, that's normal. Like that's like, yeah. I, you know, that's yeah. just what you experience. And, and, you know, there were things even more sophisticatedly, which was around, uh, you know, why is UK youth doing all this black stuff? I guess it's because, you know, they've got a black CEO and like, you know, um, thankfully my board were just absolutely rock stars about it. But I know peers that, you know, their boards were uncomfortable about making a statement or like taking mm. a stat, all those things that, you know, we look back on now where it was so controversial to put out a public statement denouncing the murder of a black man. <laughs> um, but it, it was. And, I you know, I, I, there were times I would go into rooms and people wouldn't talk about it. And I would just have to say like, hold, hello, <laughs> hi, yeah. there's, a, there's a thing happening. The world is on fire in an area. Are we just going to pretend? And yes, I might be the only person that looks like me in this conversation right now, but this is a very real thing. And, you know, there's there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot of, um, and this goes back to my point about naivety. I didn't quite realise the fear that CEOs have about their job security, and like, you know, the, the, the way that people weigh up what they can or can't do because of dynamics with their board or dynamics with whether it's a charity commission or whoever. And there were so many things. It just didn't occur to me that like somebody would have an issue with it 
or that that would be ever be enough to stop me doing what I thought was right. And I definitely yeah. made some mistakes on that, but it just has never occurred to me to to um, to dial myself down in any way in terms of the things that I believe or the things that I would wouldn't or wouldn't speak out for. So yeah, yeah. That, that, that's kind of what I mean. It was there was a real, I would say, emotional cost. But usually, I'm fine. Like it's it's part and parcel of being a leader growing into this. But at the time, I was very very fragile because I was just emotionally spent. So I think I had to be much more um, intentional about protecting my emotional state. Yeah. Because it what it, it did feel like an onslaught for for quite a few months there. It was it was a lot. Well, I mean, you're still here, and I, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to just hold that thought, and let's come back to some of the ideas around resilience and where you are now. A couple of things I just wanted to pick up on. I'm I'm actually shocked that even in like youth sector zoom calls and LinkedIn posts and stuff that you're getting trolls in those spaces that like, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by that. The other thing that you said there, that, that just to sort of um, tell a similar story. So I, I told this story um, just after the George Floyd murder as well. Mm. So my, so my son's, my son's mum. we're not together anymore, but um, yeah, she's black from South London. And I remember um one time we got kind of like verbally attacked and and the threat of physical attack mm. by this uh by this kind of drunk man walking down the street in brighton mm. this was mm. and the moment that was most interesting about it was not just the the feeling physically threatened now mm. you know i'm a fast runner like i mm. you know I could, <laughs> So if I'm if I ever sort of get into situations of physical threat on my own, I can mm. run away. But obviously I'm with her. I'm not going to mm. run and she can't run as fast and all the rest of it. So we were just kind of walking quickly to get away from the situation. And we got away from this this racist guy and um, sort of started to calm down. But the, the moment for me was realizing how like she just moved on to the next thing. In mm-hmm. it. <laughs> like, and mm-hmm. I was like, what the absolute mm-hmm. like? And I was you know, just kind of swearing. And, mm-hmm. and for me, this was like the first time I'd, I guess, sort of experienced that racism in that mm. in that moment, you know. Mm. And, and to her, that was just like growing up in South London, just mm. second nature mm. or whatever. Um, her dad told me some great stories as well, by the way, about getting stopped by the police with a mm. with a golf club in his uh, in in the glove box, which is what he had to do driving mm. around Brixton in the seventies, and the police being like. Uh, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to play golf. And they're like, we don't believe you. And he's like, mm. look in the glove box. And in the glove box, you always used to carry a tee and a golf ball just to like, <laughs> just for the effect. But yeah, like just that whole thing of, of um, you know, how blasé she was about it. And I guess that's where you start to, to, to realise, you know, just the extent of your own naivety around some of these things. So yeah, yeah, just... I, yeah, I'm still I'm still shocked that you're getting that in um, in what would be seemingly safer spaces, right? Like mm. on LinkedIn or in youth sector stuff. Um, let's come back to where you are now, and um, obviously, just having having been through that over the last few months, do you feel like you're get you're now getting away from that period of getting up at five a.m. and working till nine p.m. and it just being one thing after another and onslaught like are you still in it are you has that finished now like what's your relationship with with that sort of style of busy it definitely feels different and I think it's because I think the the long hours thing I might need to come back to but like I think um (laughs) but I think the there's just there's just no way to describe how last year and you know the last whatever months has felt like it 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 was not just the work, it was the emotional weight. It was the, yeah. you're just like, I, I, one of the things I often say again is that I, you know, I, I've chosen complicated, complex, big, knotty um, context to work in. Like that's been my, like since coming out of uni. So I'm used to working hard. I'm used to mm. working really long hours. That's, you know, ask my friends and family, like that's a, a, a thing about me. What I've never ever experienced till last year was the inability to switch my mind to what I wanted to switch it to. Yeah. So I I just couldn't turn my mind off. Like I couldn't I couldn't 
sleep and rest at night. I couldn't decide, oh, I'm just going to like chill out and watch this film. I just, it was the, it was constant. And mm. I've never experienced that before. Um, and that's definitely dialed down a hundred percent. Um, and I think one of the things that being able to launch the strategy a couple of weeks ago was so important for me because it felt like a year in the making, first of all. It felt like that was what I wanted to do from the moment I started. Um, yeah. But we've also concluded our internal restructure and, like, you know, reorganise the organisation and we've, like, launched that as well. And so there's we're in the making that work stage so there's still like, you know, we're still heavily recruiting. We still have lots of things about ways of working that, but it feels like, oh yeah, yeah, this is what I signed up to. Like, mm. this is the, okay, yeah, making all of that work. You know, um, um, one of my senior team describes a strategy as a promise. And it's yeah. like, now we need to live up to our promise. And I just love that as a description, but like, that's what energizes me. So I feel different because all of that work feels like it's pointed to something that isn't just about survival. It's yeah. something very much, um, yeah, yeah, this is this is the imprint we want to make on this issue. Let's go. That definitely feels different. So it's like if you took COVID away and you took George Floyd away and financial instability away and all that, that's what your first 100 days would have been. Exactly, guess, right? Graham. Like that, you know, my beautiful plan that I had to like grieve and like literally bury. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would have been able to, that's, 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 what I, that's what I really came into this wanting to do. Mm. And I feel like I'm finally able to, to get back to that. So... I suppose your first year and a bit of being a CEO, it's been a little bit of a, a crash course in <laughs> lots of stuff. What do you think you've learned about yourself and what do you think you've learned about the role? Uh, I, I think those are definitely the questions I haven't quite figured out yet. <laughs> um, what have I learned about myself? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that one. I really don't. I think I think I'm still very much in judgment mode so I think yeah. like all I can think about is that like oh, I could have done this should have done this uh, all of that stuff so I, I haven't got enough distance to figure out uh, you know, and that's that's generally a problem I have I'm always looking at what hasn't been done as opposed to what I have yeah. done so that's definitely a problem um, but in terms of learning about the role yeah like that I'm I've <laughs> I've definitely learned that all those things that you read in books um uh, it's different reading it to living it. And like, again, I struggled so long because I wanted to find a way of making that learning make sense. And the closest I've come to it is a, um, the analogy of running a marathon. And I don't know why I've landed on this because I've never run a marathon and I'm very likely never to run a marathon. But um, I I know people have, and I know like, you know, I know what's, what seems like it's involved. And one of the things that I think it is, is that there is almost the preparation is so hard. There's so much you need to do to get ready for it. If you're serious, you can, you can go really far in preparing for it and doing all the things that you could possibly do. Almost tech, textbook preparation. Mm. It doesn't matter how great you've prepared. It's still hard to run a marathon. Like there's, there's nothing about running it that is, like, it's hard to do it as, as well as you prepared running a marathon is still a hard thing to do. And yeah. that's the way that I think about being a CEO, that like I had thought preparation would water down the difficulty of doing it. That was my mindset going in. But if I could be really prepared, if I could be read up, if I could be planned up, then it would be easier. And, you know, again, the reality is I don't know what it would have been like without a pandemic and without, uh, you know, global, um, um, you know, marches around the race. Um, mm. But I still think it would have been harder than I was anticipating because of the, the reality of what it means to be a CEO is, I think, something you cannot explain until you're in it and you yeah. cannot feel until you're in it and the the impact of what that does to who you are your psyche your confidence your rationale about who you are there's so much it attacks that mm. i think if you're not 
if you're not able to really rally down into why are you doing this? Why is this important to you? Who are you? I think you will allow the world and others to tell you who you are. Yeah. And if you don't have something yeah. to push back on it, that's that's a really scary experience, I think, to engage in. Mm. I'd actually written down as a question to ask you what drives you. And that just feels, yeah, like I totally agree with that. And I think you have to just have a really clear sense of what your own values are and why you're in it and what you're trying to do. Yeah. And yeah, I think that point's a really well-made one that if you, if you don't have that, then you are at the the whim of how other people will try and mold the experience for you and stuff. Yes, exactly. So that sounds like it's something that you've had to reflect on and have front and center a lot over the last year. So um, what are the main things that drive you? Yeah, and it it really is, and it, it's good because it's the same thing that's always driven me, and it's but but I've had to lean on it more, obviously, in the last year and a bit than I've ever had to before. And it's funny because when I came into the role, one of the first things I said to the organisation in like kind of my first all all hands kind of meeting was, um, "What is our why? Like, what why are we here? Because if we don't know our why." <laughs> the things that we experience are going to shape us and move us and shake us and, you know, will mould to the to the situation as opposed to shaping the informa- situation ourselves. And this was in January. I had no idea what was about to come. But for me, mm, yeah, that question of my why is, is so integral to why I get up in the morning. And for me, it very much is anchored in my Christian faith anchored in the notion that I, I it's not just happenstance that I'm where I am doing what I'm doing and if I'm in a space if I'm in a conversation if I'm in an interaction I'm meant to make that thing better I'm meant to to be a positive influence in that space just this is a day-to-day like that's the reason I show up is is mm. to try and make a difference but at the much more micro level you know, this, I feel such a weight of responsibility um, to take the baton on from my forefathers and, um, you know, the people that have come before me on matters of social justice, equality, um, you know, making the world a better place for the generations that come behind you. That That is at the very roots of who I am. And so I've chosen work that focuses on young people, that focuses on inequality, on focuses on social justice because I feel like I am benefiting from the literal blood, sweat and tears of people who have sacrificed that came before me, that there is this weight of responsibility that I can't drop the baton for the generations that are coming behind me. And so Mm. that's what motivates me. And and that naivety that I spoke about before is, is rooted at this idea that I really do believe that everything that we see is has been created is man-made like every injustice every every social construct every way that the world works is something that man as a society has decided and so if it isn't working we have the agency to decide something different and so if we have that agency how dare we not right like that's the thing that just makes me it's not fair it's not right that some kids just don't have and have to experience um, um, less than others. I just think that's nonsense. There's no reason for that. And if we just set the world up to be different or to operate different, the systems that surround young people, if they operated differently, that wouldn't be the case. Mm. Um, and and my, uh, my contribution to that work is what drives me. I just want to say, where do I sign up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Hallelujah to all of that. Before we finish, it feels like with everything that you've been through, the topic of this podcast is just particularly, like it's just a particularly important one, right? Getting beyond busy and Mm. and getting out of (laughs) that sense of business and Mm. into a space where, because you know, 
you of all people, I mean, you deserve some lightness and mm. it feels like there's an awful lot of weight in everything that you're doing, in the responsibility that you're carrying and, you know, to get out of that as well and switch off and, and just have, have lightness in your life as well as that weight. So I I would just love to hear your thoughts on what it what it means either right now or in the future to get beyond busy and to uh, to be in a, a, a different way of working to how you've been over the last few months. Oh, great. I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> That's why this podcast is four years and still going, right? It's, it's, it's like the eternal question. Oh, that, my Lord. It's so funny. And I, I have talking... no answers either. <laughs> I was um, saying to a colleague today, actually, I think I, I was reading somewhere yesterday that um, this, this kind of article about, you know, don't judge yourself because you haven't emerged out of the pandemic, like with this whole new, you know, set of hobbies and skills and like self development yeah, and like and all that, yeah, yeah, and like you know, rediscovered balance in your life. Like, yeah. don't. And I just, I just, I ate that article up because I can feel myself starting to feel guilty because I haven't like found this beautiful balance and I haven't, you know rediscovered mm. you know this hobby that i was has been laying dormant that it really has been a matter of survival and it's been a matter of like go 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 and um i've i've wrestled with your question even before um this role and it's only become even more challenging for me here because i I, I honestly just don't even feel like i have the headspace to even think about what that could look like and now yeah. to be honest my energy is ironically on making sure others are able to do that. So yes, like I think yeah. about my my senior team and like my my staff more broadly and just like I, how do how do I make sure they are doing that and it's it it occupies my mind far more than am I doing that. Mm. Um, and I've been told I realize the irony of that and I realize the power of role modeling and all of that good stuff but if I'm being really honest that's the stuff that that I'm exercised about much more than my own personal balance because um, I still haven't quite figured out how to ensure that they are able to do that as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. I just had Jodie Cook on the podcast who is the founder of JC Social Media, social mm. media agency, and just written a couple of um, books that won business book awards in the last year, Instagram Rules and um, mm. Raising Entrepreneurial Kids. And she was saying exactly the same thing about her agency was she basically said, look, when COVID hit, my thought was everyone's going to be fearful. And my job is to kind of mop up that fear so that they're not fearful and just do the fear for them, which I guess in the one sense feels admirable. And it does feel like that's part of the weight of responsibility of being a CEO. But also, yeah, like the other part that you said there, the role modeling and you know, like over time, it become it would be unsustainable if you if you were if your focus was only on everybody else's balance to the detriment of your own, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think it would ideally look like if you could wave a magic wand and then tomorrow you have a different different relationship with your work that prioritizes you? Is there anything that would be particularly at the front and center of that? Like that's, that's such a great coaching question. <laughs> <laughs> what would it look like if you could do that? Um, um, oh gosh, I, I honestly think it's it's the really unsexy stuff, which is that like you know you're just not, you know, ch- glued to your phone twenty four seven. That you're like yeah. you know you're able to go do something else. Like I haven't you know I I I I, I my mum stays with me. I'm um, I'm um, you know she's been shielding throughout all of this, and it's been a very challenging journey around the vaccine Mm. so like i still i haven't seen family and friends in a year and a half like we haven't all the things that um that my my commitments to my friendships and to my family would have pulled me away from because i would have felt equally committed to them so i would have made time for birthdays for visits for parties all of that's been taken away um and so it would even just look like being able to do that like just being able to just go and hang out with my friends and family and not be looking at my phone and not be worried about you know what's next in terms of work mm. so 
I, I can't wait, honestly, to get back to that. I, I haven't seen my nieces and my godchildren in a really long time and video calls is not cutting it at this point. So, yeah, all, I just can't wait to finally be able to just go hang out. Um, goodness, let alone travel. I, I can't even imagine that anymore. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's... I, I'll take that as the next step. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great step towards getting beyond busy and yeah. feels like a really good place to leave it. I just want to say one thing um, before we finish, which is that um, you're a trustee of Centrepoint and I've been on the mm. board of Centrepoint. You're talking about marathons and be under no illusion. They're going to ask you to run the marathon because that's that's <laughs> that's why I ran the London, London Marathon um, good few years ago is because Centrepoint said, hey, we want a trustee to do it. <laughs> Centrepoint, UK youth has like seems to believe that I'm going to be running a marathon at some yeah, point. You, I'm th- just there's like, no way you're getting out of uh, this. It's happening. All I keep saying is I will find you the people to do it. Don't worry. <laughs> and I am the number one cheerleader. Don't worry. But um, nice. oh my goodness. Can't get my but head around trying and- to do it. I just want to just say just super inspiring just listening to all of that and just congratulations on everything you've been doing and just with everything that you've got going on, it's yeah, just a pleasure and an honour to have you on on here for an hour. So I just want to say thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you. It's been such a lovely conversation and I'm really just can't wait to um, continue to seeing what you're going to do strength to strength. It's been, I love, love, love your show. So thank you so much for um, the honour of being able to be on it. It's exciting. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. So there you go, Ndidi Okazi. Um, just a really good episode and just really enjoyed connecting with Ndidi. And um, she's also, we didn't talk about this during the episode, but if you want to hear more from her, she's also uh, the host or the co-host, I should say, of the Are You Convinced podcast, which is it's a really interesting debate show and it looks at a wide range of topics around children and young people and youth work and professionals and yeah, you can find it on any podcast platform. So be sure to let her know what you think. And also, um, I was just asked uh, after we finished the recording to uh, just mention that she's on social media as well. So if you want to um, connect with Ndidi, she's on Twitter and Instagram. And the username is at Ndidi first, which is basically at and then N-D-I-D-I, the number one and then S-T. So at Ndidi first, check her out on Twitter and Instagram. I am, honestly, I've got so much, like, fiddly stuff going on. I'm buying camping gear ready for summer holidays, getting ready for Latitude Festival next week, which sort of feels really surreal. Did a little practice run in my garden, which I put a picture of that on Instagram if you want to have a look, um, just at Graham Walcott on Instagram, of uh, me and my boy just practicing ready for... Uh, some proper camping um just one of those things with autism like it just feels like if you do a little practice when he gets his head around it it just makes things easier just cuts out the anxiety so we did that the other night i'm still um i don't know uh catching up on the sleep from that book deadline buying you know temp pegs and all this other stuff getting ready and then uh yeah just a mad couple of weeks really um ahead so uh, yeah, we're going to be wrapping up with this episode ready for the summer. So no episodes will be on busy for the next six weeks. And then when we're back, we've got some really good ones um, already recorded and lined up. Uh, we've got Nick Marks, um, very famous TED speaker, talking about the science of happiness. And yeah, some really good ones coming up. Um, Samantha Boardman as well, who's got a really good book out. She's a, a positive psychologist and, and therapist. Um, so yeah, some really good ones in the can ready for when we come back in September. And um, yeah, it's been a really good run actually with the last few episodes. I've just, I've really enjoyed these. And um, yeah, we're going to probably move, as I say in a couple of episodes ago, back to, we're going to do one a fortnight. Um, but the idea is we'll still do some other episodes in between on the sort of down weeks like we used to do in COVID pandemic lockdown one, because uh, we used to be a fortnightly podcast and then we, we just started finding that there was so much other stuff to talk about that we were kind of using the the off weeks. So I kind of want to get back to having off weeks ready again. Not that I'm predicting another lockdown. Am I? Oh, God. <laughs> just the thought of that. Oh, no. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's, gonna, it's a really interesting little, uh, little time period coming up. So uh, that's what will be happening in September. But yeah, I just want to say a huge thank you to Emily and Pavel, who's my little team on uh, on the podcast and uh, particularly over the last couple of weeks where I've been less than forthcoming on getting my bits done 
Um, so uh, it's kind of left Pavel a little bit um, at the last minute, which hasn't been the case for a while. I've been pretty good for the last little while. Um, but uh, yeah, that just you know makes everyone else's job a little bit harder. So thank you for your patience, Pavel and Emily, uh, as I've been sort of heads down on the book and all of that. Um, our sponsors for the show, as ever, are Think Productive. If you are interested in bringing us into your organisation to talk productivity, helping your people to do their best work, um, we're all about helping to transform how you think about work. And if that's you, uh, just drop us a line. Go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find um, the Think Productive office in your country. And if you want to drop me a line individually, it's just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk or connect with me on Instagram at Graham Alcott. And uh, finally to say, I'm doing my, my weekly email is rev up for the week. Um, so it's a, it's a one email a week thing on a Sunday night, goes out at 4.05 p.m. And it's just one positive or productive idea for the week ahead every week. If you want to sign up for that, if you just go to graymalcott.com forward slash links, um, or actually just go to graymalcott.com and there's like little forms that you can fill in on the, on any of the pages there that will sign you up for rev up for the week so if you want to keep in touch with what i'm doing over the summer uh, then rev up for the week and also uh, my instagram are probably the best places uh, and yeah we'd just love to hear from you and if you've got other uh, thoughts about guests for this podcast or anything else you want to uh, give me a shout about just drop me an email graham at thinkproductive.co.uk that's it school's out for the summer it's uh yeah it's a really interesting it feels like a sort of transitional liminal time right now as i'm recording this and um just getting ready to really change gears in a very surreal way uh try and dodge the covid along the way and yeah just have a great summer and i'll see you in september take care bye for now